the series that we're in the middle of is, is about meekness. And uh, Wes sent the uh, email out to Richard and myself and Mike Dixon asking us if we'd be interested in subbing in for him and uh, talking on this topic, which I thought was very interesting and was looking forward to it. I looked down the list of, of the uh, individuals that he'd highlighted that we could pick from, and I'm looking at the list, and I see uh, Moses, and it's like, absolutely. The uh, Bible tells us straight out he was the meekest man on the planet at the time. And then Jesus, which, you know, check mark, perfect example of meekness. And then I got to Paul on the list. And uh, I'll have to confess, my first thought was Paul, a man of meekness. And it, it didn't necessarily register with me. Um, so I said, I've got to do that one. I've got to take Paul. Uh, partly because of my own reaction to seeing him on the list. Uh, and uh, knowing that it actually the, the New Testament does indicate that Paul is a meek man. And so I want to dig into that. I want to study that. And partly I want to reflect a little bit about why my reaction was what it was. I also know that I'm not the only one that would react that way about Paul, thinking that uh, is he necessarily at the top of a list of people that you might think of as, as being meek. Um, in fact, I know for a fact that's true because I bounced that idea off my uh, executive assistant today and got the same response, like, Paul? Hmm, not interesting. Uh, there's a lot of uh, images that you might find of Paul. There's a statue of Paul at the Vatican. Uh, this is it. Uh, he looks fierce. He's got a sword. Doesn't look meek to me. Uh, there's a lot of movies that, that uh, have portrayed Paul. Here's the most recent one, a guy named uh, James Faulkner. Uh, he looks fierce as well, and he's tall and big. Um, not necessarily what you might think of when you think of that word meek. So the question is, does Paul even belong on the list? And he does because the Bible says that he was meek. In fact, Paul himself indicates that he's meek. And since Moses wrote the law and wrote that he was the meekest man on the planet at the time, then I guess it's okay for us to claim uh, to be meek if indeed we are. Here in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, I'm meek when I'm away, uh, or, or meek when I'm with you, but bold when I'm away, so you can bo both be meek and bold at the same time. So that's super exciting to know that you can have that combination of traits at the same time. And then we know that Paul, as he writes about himself, takes responsibility for the man that he was uh, throughout his life and indicates that, uh, you know, he's got to take responsibility for that. He says he's the least of the apostles, 1 Corinthians 15. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he, being Jesus, appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. And there's this little bit later on that says, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. And it's so interesting when you read about Paul, this line that he walks between humility and what sounds like pride. And you see it actually right here in the scripture, and it fascinates me. I want to know more about how you, that combination happens within a man and how... Uh, he can write about himself being the least of the apostles, but then at the same time talk about the hard work that he's put in. And, of course, you see that he gives credit to God for that work, but still there's that, that kind of tension. So if you've been uh, you know, opting into this series up to this point, you know that there's actually been a lot of discussion about this word meekness as a starting point. 
and that Wes in his opening uh, series kind of led off with this definition or this statement about meekness that might help us as we think about you know, our reaction uh, to the notion that Paul would be on that list as opposed to, say, Moses or Jesus. And the way that Wes and Mike Dixon and Richard have reframed the way that we might think about or misunderstand this ideal of meekness, they use this statement, meekness is about patiently enduring the present in light of the future, specifically thinking about the future being an eternal future and helping us to bear with or endure what we're going through at this time. So a meek person is going to behave in a certain way. They're going to speak in a certain way. But meekness is not just about what we do. Meekness is a part of who we are. And as Richard said in his lesson last Wednesday night, it's a matter of the heart. It comes from right inside here. And we know that Paul certainly endured the present in light of the future. And you can go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and see a list of things that Paul endured. Shipwreck and beatings and prison. He'll itemize that for you. And at the very end of his life in 2 Timothy, he talks about having run the race, endured that race, and being poured out like a drink offering. Now, I'm not sure about the patience part. I'm not sure Paul was always patiently enduring because you see that tension. He even talks about it in Philippians chapter 1 where he talks about wanting to be in the future but kind of being pulled to the present. But I know for a fact as you read about Paul that he knew what his inheritance was and that it was waiting for him. So he belongs on that list. And there's a sample of Bible heroes that belong on that list. Noah, Jacob, Moses... Mike, Mike Dixon talked about David, Elijah, Jeremiah, Jesus, Richard talked about last week, John, a former son of thunder who calls down fire out of heaven on a town in Samaria, but the end of his life writes with such gentleness and love and compassion about my little children. What a transformation occurred in his life to become meek. Do you see any sort of soft-spined pushovers on that list. These are strong individuals. And these are just the men that are meek. You talk about strong women in the Bible who are meek as well, and the list gets even longer. But meekness was often more than just how they behaved. It was part of their character. And often it was part of their character after a process that they had to go through. And so the question is, do we ask God to help us to be meek? And the title of the slide says, be careful what you ask for. You know, if you ask for patience, what you're probably going to get is a lot of stoplights and traffic jams. If you ask for wisdom, James indicates you're going to get trial. Paul says, ask for a strong character and you're going to experience some suffering. Romans chapter 5 talks about endurance, that part of the definition of meekness that Wes has put in front of us. He says, patiently enduring. If you're going to learn how to endure, you're going to encounter some suffering along the way. Romans chapter 5. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. 
So if you want to have a strong character, you're going to sign up for some endurance-producing suffering in this life. But the reward is hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Do we rejoice in our sufferings? It's a hard thing to do. And it gives me some comfort that Paul doesn't seem to rejoice all that much in his sufferings either. If you understand that rejoice means happiness. But if you understand there's a deeper meaning there and a sense of joy that God's working in your life, then perhaps we can join Paul in rejoicing at the times that we suffer in this life. I don't like it. And one of the reasons I don't like it is because it reminds me that I'm out of control. I'm not the person who's in control in that situation, and I don't like to be the person not in control if I'm confessing. So here's my definition of meekness that sort of helps me understand these strong individuals where Paul is at and what it means in my life. I think meekness is the constant state of patient, hopeful humility, which flows from simply acknowledging the reality that I am not in control and God is completely in control. You can't be a meek person until you're willing to acknowledge the reality that already exists, which is that you're not in charge. And until I'm willing to acknowledge that and then behave in a way that reflects that, there's no way that I'm going to be able to claim to have this character trait, this strength called meekness. But if meekness is a state, it's also a process, which is where this gets really challenging. Here's this poem you may have heard. It's called Invictus. It's from a poet named William Ernest Henley. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but if you look at the, the last part of it, it says, Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds me and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. If you want to think that you're the master of your fate and the captain of your soul, you can't be meek. And your inheritance is in danger. It's a scary thought to even think that you'd want to be the captain of your own soul, isn't it? Who do you want to be the captain of your soul? Jesus Christ. So let's look at Saul of Tarsus, the Pharisee of Pharisees. Here's what Paul says about himself. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost of all. That's a meek man, isn't it? Paul didn't start out that way. Here's a quote from a book called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. A proud man is always looking down on things and people, and of course, as long as you're looking down, you can't see something that's above you. The process of meekness often begins directly with dealing with pride. The notion that I'm in control of my own destiny, that's the the definition of pride, isn't it? I'm at the center of my universe. And it would seem that Saul of Tarsus was full of pride and empty when it came to meekness as we meet him for the first time. Acts chapter 7, verse 58. 
And I'm not going to read all these scriptures to you, partly because you know the story as well as I do, most of you. And also because on Sunday mornings we're going through Acts, and so you either have or will be reading all these scriptures. But here's the Saul that we meet in Acts chapter 7. It says, Then they cast him out of the city, him being Stephen, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. What's Saul looking down at right now? The garments of murderers and the dead body of Stephen. And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Acts chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Can you imagine the pride and self-confidence welling up in Saul as he marches off to Damascus? He is large and in charge. That image of James Faulkner seems like that could be right. And whether he was a large man of stature or a small man of stature, he had a big presence. And he was marching up to Damascus with a mission. Here's from his own lips. This is Paul talking about the man that he was. He said, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. He says, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. He said, I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. From his own lips. What comes before a fall? Pride comes before a fall. And if meekness is a process, it often starts with an intervention. And this is the mother of all interventions that happens in Acts chapter 9. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord or sir? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you must do. Paul was on the wrong path, and Jesus intersected him. This next passage where Saul, Paul gives a little more color uh, to what happened to him here is this, has some interesting things in it. It says, when... When we had all fallen to the ground, which makes sense, right? The whole party, when they see this bright light, would, would certainly all fall to the ground. That's what I would do for sure. Heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, another interesting tidbit, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. There's something that's not in chapter 9 that we, we understand about what was said to, to Saul from Jesus. And it's an interesting phrase. And then down in the, in the bottom part, uh, it, it says that 
Jesus gave him additional instructions, even right then. We don't read about that in 9, so we hear from, from Paul that he, he knew from the very start that he was going to be given this mission. And there's this interesting phrase there that says, the mission is to open the eyes of the Gentiles so that they may turn from darkness into light and from power of Satan to the power of God. A man who needs his own eyes opened is going to have a mission to go open other people's eyes. It's a little ironic, don't you think? But this, this whole reference to kicking the goads is probably something that we would not find familiar at all. It's an agricultural reference. So if you're steering a team of oxen, you've got a harness and you've got uh, a reins, but sometimes they're not going to respond to those things, and so you had a stick that was pokey on the end, and you could poke them on the side and steer them towards the other side. And if they weren't going, you could poke them harder, so not too dissimilar from spurs on your boots when you're trying to steer a horse. And oftentimes the, the ox would uh, not like the fact that they're getting poked by a sharp stick, and so they would kick back at that stick, and of course they would hurt themselves even more. We might have some other figures of speech that we would use. We might say, you're tripping all over yourself, or you're shooting yourself in the foot, or you're cutting your nose off to spite your face, or you're swimming upstream, or you're fighting an uphill battle. All of those things might be figures of speech we would use to say the same thing that's being said to Saul. Saul, you're just going against the flow. You're kicking against the goads. An intervention only has one purpose. An intervention is designed to create repentance. A 180, a change of mind and heart. And the need for intervention may not always be obvious on the outside. It might only be obvious on the inside where God can see the heart that needs an intervention. So let's talk about the outside for just a little bit. Let's talk about resumes. Because Paul had an impressive resume on the outside. Uh, once again, from his lips... If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Here's what the message says with that same passage. It's really interesting and I think uh, very clear. He says, you know my pedigree, a legitimate birth, Circumcised on the eighth day, an Israelite from the elite tribe of Benjamin, probably even named for a king. A strict and devout adherent to God's law, a fiery defender of the purity of my religion, even to the point of persecuting the church. A meticulous observer of everything set down in God's law book, the very credentials these people are waving around as something special, I'm tearing up and throwing out with the trash, along with everything else I used to take credit for. That last bit shows the impact of the intervention. But that first part talks about a resume that would be impressive on the outside. Son of a Pharisee, student of Gamaliel, the foremost, foremost rabbi of his time, and a Pharisee member of the Sanhedrin that we meet in Acts. Appointed by the high priest for a special mission. He was a skilled lawyer. He was a special prosecutor not only with the ability to interpret and apply the law, but to enforce the law. It's like having two branches of government in one man. But you often have to look past the resume or the LinkedIn page to see an invention, intervention in the making or an intervention in the past. The other reason that I chose Paul is because I, re I relate to his story in a personal way. 
I can't tell his story without telling mine, without being a total hypocrite. The last thing I can do is stand up here and tell all of you how you should pursue a life of meekness and how it's done without telling you what my journey has been like and without a little confession on my part. So I'm going to show you some slides that are part of a deck that, that I use every year when I'm at a place uh, called Leadership Summit, which is a, a short course that Abilene Christian University puts on. They have the short course in Buena Vista, Colorado, on the top of a mountain, and they take 100 to 150 students, usually uh, seniors, uh, uh, juniors, up to the top of the mountain, and they have business leaders and they have faith leaders come in and talk to the students about various things, mainly sharing the things that they've learned in life that would be important for students to hear uh, under the direction of Rick Lytle, who's the former dean of the College of Business at ACU and now runs a group called the CEO Forum. These next four slides are from my leadership deck, and it's a story that I tell every year to students. And I tell them what uh, is said on the mountain stays on the mountain. We're about to violate that rule. Uh, first time that I'll be talking about this to my church family, but the direction that led me down this path was Rick telling me, look, just talk about something you wish someone would have shared with you when you were just 22 years old, which I thought was kind of lazy on his part, really. I mean, he's the dean of the College of Business Administration, so you could give a little bit of better assignment than that. It was only after I started to work on his assignment that I realized how genius it was. So this is what I say when I come to the students. I talk to them about who I am. I'm uh, Mike Willoughby. I'm from the class of 1986. I'm married to my best friend, and she is to this very day, class of 87, since 1986. I have three sons, Lyndon, class 12, Matthew, class of 16, and Jackson, hopefully, class of 21. ACU distinguished, uh, distinguished alumni in 2012, and I'm a shepherd for the Church of Christ on McDermott Road since 2008. What a privilege. And then professionally, and remember, most of these students are business students, so they want to know about your professional life. It's really interesting, too, by the way. You poll the, the business students and ask them what they want to be when they grow up, what they want for their careers, and they all name C-level executives. They don't have a clue why they want to be that. And so when they hear from a business executive, they usually you know, pay special attention. So I talk about the fact that I started three different businesses. I started one when I was at ACU called Centurion Systems. It was named after my social club. Contract programming that paid the way and enabled me to marry my best friend when I was a senior at ACU. Another company called Integration Services in 1989, and then a company called Design Technologies in 1994. I sold Design Technologies, that service business, to PFS Web in 1999, joining as the VP of e-commerce technologies. I became the CIO in 2001, the president in 2006, president of the company in 2010, and the CEO in 2013. So that could be an impressive resume and an impressive LinkedIn article. But there's something hidden right there in 1994. 1994 is a derail. 1994 is when I got a mulligan. You know what a mulligan is? Mulligan's when you hit the golf ball off the fairway and into the rough. And your, uh, the party you're playing with allows you to take your ball and put it back on the fairway and not count a stroke against you. God gave me a mulligan on September 29, 1994. There's a book called Derailed by Tim Irwin. Uh, Tim is a member of the CEO Forum and uh, had the privilege of hearing him talk and talking with him uh, over dinner. The purpose of the book, according to Tim, is to shed intense light on our vulnerabilities, the irregularities, the small cracks and fissures that can cause us to derail 
whether we're leaders, emerging leaders, or simply navigating a career. And he has a list of five different things that are red flags if you're a leader that may be telling you you're headed for a derailment. The first thing is that character trumps competence. You can be very competent, but if your character is weak, it's a real problem. Arrogance is the mother of all derailers. Lack of self or other awareness is a common denominator of all derailments. We are always who we are, especially under stress. And derailment is not inevitable, but without attention to development, character development, it is a probability. You see that one? That was a problem for me in 1994, and this surely was. So Monday, September 26, 1994, I was standing in my office in the Xerox Tower in Las Colinas, and I was looking out over William Square at the horses. I don't know if you've seen them. They're pretty impressive. We had started uh, design technologies or integration services. We had started integration services in 1989 in a really small office in a kind of dumpy uh, office park at uh, LBJ and Abrams. And we had been there since uh, up, up until uh, September of 94. And so we moved into our fancy new office in the Xerox uh, Tower because we had grown from two guys uh, that started integration services to over 50. And in 1994, uh, we were expecting to do six to seven million dollars in revenue that year. So for a 30-year-old president, that's pretty tall cotton. And I was standing in my office looking out over William Square and I thought, this is what it feels like to have arrived. Thursday, September 29th, 1994, my partners, the other four that were co-owners in the business, because I own 45%, which, by the way, is a strategic error on my part, called me into a conference and said, we don't want to work with you anymore. They started to pass around documents, legal documents, that were motions to have a new, a new president and to have a new chairman and... They passed them around to each other and signed them, and they passed them to me, and I signed them because I'm not sure what else I'm going to do. And it was a real surreal experience. The thing that made it even more surreal is that we had a fire drill, and the whole building had to empty out in the parking lot. And so we came back up, and we talked about what was going on, and we worked it out. But I remember uh, that day, one of the most surreal experiences, because it was just a day of really weird things happening. I went to a concert with some friends of mine, Crystal and I, and this other couple. And I'm watching the concert, experiencing the concert, and I'm spending the whole time thinking, what just happened, and do I even know who I am? God was very gracious to me. I was back to work on my own within two weeks. But it's tempting to want to put the intervention behind us quickly and get to work. And we see that Saul, who began testifying immediately in Damascus after that intervention, had that same temptation. And there's almost always a first lesson to be learned after intervention. And it's the hardest lesson of all. It's a lesson called dependence. Acknowledging that I am not in control. It starts out where Jesus tells Saul to get up off the ground. Go to town, knowing that there's no way in the world he can do that by himself. He's blind. 
And so leading him by the hand, they brought him in Damascus. You know who they is, the party that were, were going to Damascus with him to accomplish his mission, right? He's dependent on them to get him to Damascus. More dependence because he needs Ananias to grab a hold of him. The Lord spoke to Ananias and told him to go see Saul. So Ananias departed, entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, literally grabbing him, he said, and this is so sweet, Brother Saul. Brother Saul. More dependence. After Saul's testifying in Damascus, it says many days had elapsed. We'll talk about that a little bit more in just a minute, in a minute. But it says that um, the Jews plotted together to do away with Saul, and their plots became known to him. And so his disciples had to take him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. Here's the man who came to Damascus with a mission to destroy the Christians there, and they're having to let him down through a hole in the wall in a basket. Man, he's fallen a long way. He goes to Jerusalem, and it says he's trying to associate with the disciples, but they're all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took a hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and they had talked to him, and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And because of Barnabas taking Saul and Saul being dependent on Barnabas, and the testimony of Barnabas, he was able to move freely about in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. But then there's this. It says, and he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. When the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea. Dependence teaches us that we're not in control. And we don't like the thought of not being in control. We don't like the thought of being dependent as humans, as Americans, and especially Texans. We're independent-minded. You heard that story, a self-made man, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Self-made man is a ludicrous concept. We want to be captains of our own souls and destinies, and independence is incompatible with meekness. Meekness requires dependence. Sometimes we just need a Barnabas in our lives to help us travel down the road called meek. The two weeks after I lost my job were difficult. That question I had in my mind that night, do I even know who I am anymore, kept coming back around to me. Crystal was great. Not too many questions, no judging, no anxiety that she showed me. She's awesome. I was dependent on her to hold it together. I prayed a lot. One of my former partners that fired me gave me an unsolicited reference to a former client called Daisy Tech. And the CIO of Daisy Tech, who's another ACU connection, reached out to me with a contract programming job just for me. I quickly formed a C Corp called Design Technologies and got to work with my hands on the keyboard. And I was dependent on someone who fired me to help me get my next job. God put me in the corner of a cold computer room with a guy named Roy who's a Christian brother, and just the two of us to work on this project together. I dusted off some old programming skills. I learned a new language along with Roy. We completed a really cool project together over that year, and it led to a really great idea that helped me grow design technologies. We talked about Jesus, and we talked about grace, and we talked about failure, and we talked about living in the moment, 
and I healed, and I was dependent on a 20th century Barnabas. Five years later, I sold design technology to Daisy Tech to form the e-commerce function of a new startup called PFS. My LinkedIn profile today looks like I had a master plan. Integration services to design technology to PFS and no gaps, because two weeks doesn't count. <laughs> Here's the truth. I was and am dependent on God, and none of the unlikely sequence of events would have come together without him and without that intervention. After intervention, there's often heavy lifting. We're tempted to jump straight up from intervention and repentance and go straight into self-improvement and work. Saul was, and he was effective to a point. His testimony that Jesus met him on the road to intervene was powerful, and it says that people were amazed. It's the Greek word from which we get ecstatic. They were ecstatic at his conversion. But other than his conversion story, what message can he preach? The apostles spent three years with Jesus learning how to preach and what the story was. The evangelists spent time with the apostles. These passages from Acts chapter 9 says, Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues. Then it says, Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. And then it says, When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. Somewhere in the middle of this, Saul took a trip to Arabia. This is the passage. Paul says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation from Jesus Christ. When he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus, the many days, and then the uh, deportation. And it says, after three years, when he was in Damascus, I went up to Jerusalem then to visit Cephas, Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord brother. Saul needed to be equipped for the mission that God had for him. He was dependent on Jesus to receive what the apostles had already received, but the Spirit had heavy lifting to do. And we won't be meek without allowing the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, to work on us. From the fall of 94 to the fall of 97, I let the Spirit work on me. I read the Bible more than I ever had. I read books from great Christian authors. Max Licato's In the Grip of Grace was especially meaningful. The two-man project team of Mike and Roy continued to grow to include a guy named Jeff and several others, and we continued to talk about Jesus. I talked about Jesus in the workplace on a personal level like I'd never done before, learned to be comfortable sharing my faith and being salt and light in the mission field we call the workplace. I started to be more comfortable being dependent on God and others and to take things day to day. In the fall of 1997, it was time to get to work, and from the fall of 97 to January 2001, it was church planning time with hundreds of meetings and lots of work. And I'm here to tell you, if you want to learn meekness, you should plant a church. When in meekness training, there are times to work and there are times to rest. And sometimes the process includes time out. So here's the interesting part. When Saul was in Jerusalem, 
And it says he was with them, moving about freely, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. He was talking and arguing with Hellenistic Jews. They were attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. And then it says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It continued to increase. So Saul's deported from Judea, and then everything's okay. Doesn't Paul need to open the gates of the kingdom to the Gentiles? That's his mission. Peter opens the gates of the kingdom to the Gentiles in Acts 10 and 11. So what does Saul do in Tarsus? He almost certainly made tents. Probably preached. Maybe just regular old church work. Maybe he did this. Maybe this is when he had that special vision and got caught up into heaven and received the thorn in his flesh. And it's tempting to spend time here, but let's leave it a void just like Luke wrote it in Acts. Time out. Sometimes God will put us in time out to teach us to learn to be meek. Jacob, Moses, David, Elijah, Jeremiah... They all needed time. Jesus didn't need to learn to be meek, and he still took time to rest. Saul was in time out where he could likely be still and know that God is the I am and is in control, and he was not. And then there's this beautiful passage where Barnabas reenters the scene and grabs hold of Paul, and it's back to work. And sometimes we just need a Barnabas. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he'd found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Fall of 1997 to April 2000, North Plano Church Plant Task Force at Waterview, April 2000 to January 2001, the McDermott Road Steering Committee. Fall of 2000 to 2002 for me, sabbatical. And then my friend and brother Kent Smith asked me to lunch in the winter of 2002. And Kent said to me, he said, Willoughby, it's time to get back in the saddle. I said, what do you mean, Kent? He says, you know what I mean. You've been sitting on the pew for a year. You need to get back in the saddle. You need to teach class. So I said, okay, Kent, I'll teach class. Sign me up. I didn't know that the next class that was going to come up was going to be called followership. Followership was a special class we taught in the spring and summer of 2003, and followership for me was like an MBA in meekness. Richard Beasley and I co-taught that class, and I'll, he'll, he'll tell you, we, we talked on the phone every single morning as we were both driving to work about what we were going to teach on the next Sunday. It changed our lives. It was like going to finishing school. What an amazing gift from God. He has blessed me so much. Be careful what you ask for. If you want to inherit the earth, you might need an intervention. You will need to find strength and dependence. You'll need to submit to some heavy lifting of the Spirit. You're going to need to wait on the Lord. You're going to need to get to work in His time. Meekness is the constant state of patient, hopeful humility which flows from simply acknowledging the reality that I am not in control and God is completely in control. And here's how we're going to end the lesson. Words from Paul. The grace of our Lord was more than abundant 
with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Normally we don't do invitations on Wednesday night. But you can't talk about Paul and the intervention that he had and the turnaround in his life without giving everyone the ability to have the same thing in their life. And so if you're sitting there right now tonight and you're experiencing an intervention, start, middle, end, and you want to have this meekness in your life, the way to have it is to have the Holy Spirit involved in your life. And the way you do that is by accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior, being baptized in His name, and that's exactly what you're going to have. If you're just going through tough times and you want to share that burden with somebody, this is the great church family to do it. We'll pray for you. We'll pray with you. We'll give you a hug. We'll try to be a Barnabas in your life because sometimes that's all you need is a Barnabas in your life.